tuned into Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today, I will answer the question of what to look for in political candidates, and I will talk about what phrase I don't want to hear any more of from the GOP. Next, I'm Living with Liberty. for in a political candidate? What are the characteristics you should look for? You know, we hear every year, every election cycle, this is the most important election of our time, without fail, year after year, it's always the most important election of our time. Given that, shouldn't we be more uh, heavily scrutinizing those candidates that are running, that are telling us this is the most important election of our time? Absolutely, I believe we should. We should scrutinize them like we scrutinize people we would hire for our own business. I mean, I was a hiring manager at one point in my career. I went and very carefully uh, looked over candidates and scrutinized their backgrounds and asked them tough questions because I wanted to get to the root of what kind of person, what kind of work ethic they had? Or do they have the ability to learn or not? Are they going to uphold the values we want? So absolutely, if this is the most important election of our time year after year, then these candidates need to be living up to the standard of being the most important candidates to lead us through the most important election of our time. So what is it? How? What characteristics should you look for? What is it you look for in a political candidate? What are the marketing tricks that are used by candidates to get your vote? These are all things we need to consider. So what I want to do, I want to start with the tricks that that these candidates use over and over to get your vote. Let's start with those tricks and whether using them is enough. I'll do a kind of a personal case study here. Are those tricks enough to get my vote now? Maybe when I was younger, not as savvy. Uh, definitely. The the tricks work. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't use them, right? The tricks work on especially low-information voters. Now, are those tricks now that I've been voting for, you know, the last 20-plus years now of my life, are those tricks enough 
these days to get my vote or not. So I'll say this. There are a few things I am now more cognizant of with the marketing of a political candidate that will cause me to go in the opposite direction. Because once you see the marketing trick, you can never unsee it. Once you see and understand what the marketing trick is and how it's meant to affect or sway your opinion, you won't unsee it. You'll have this uh, ability then to look and say, oh, yeah, you're doing this. Uh, and let me go back and look and see if your actions uh, match up with what you're telling me. <laughs> They're politicians. A number of times they don't. There are really good ones out there. Don't get me wrong. There's really good ones out there where they do. And I'm not saying it's going to line up 100%, but is it a majority or isn't it a majority of time that, that what they say and what they do uh, coincide and, and, and um, are truthful? All right, so the first thing I want you to, to know and the first thing I pick up on is the key words that these politicians continue to use in printed materials, in social media ads, in stump speeches, and even in conversations with you. Now, one of those key words that I've seen used over and over, particularly in this cycle we've got coming up for these midterms, is fighter. There's others, but let's focus on this one, because all you need is to, to understand one, and then you'll see the rest of them and say, oh, that's just a key word you're using. What are you trying to what are you trying to get me to do by using that keyword? So let's let's focus in on fighter here. And we'll focus in on this one because both parties use it more than Hunter Biden uses as crack pipe. I mean, it's it's ridiculous how often you'll see in printed materials from doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat that says they're a fighter. I'm a fighter for this, I'm a fighter for the little guy, blah, blah, blah. Now, I've gotten several emails recently promoting a gubernatorial candidate. We're running, we have a gubernatorial primary here um, in Wisconsin. Uh, so it's a Republican one. We currently have a Democrat governor who is running again. So obviously they're not going to, uh, they're not going to have a, a primary. So we've got a Republican gubernatorial candidate or, um, primary going on. We've got one candidate in particular that's sending, that just, Sending the emails, and it's really emails on their behalf. Uh, I don't necessarily recall one particular from them specifically, and I say them, I say from them, that's in air quotes, because I know it's, it's not really from them, it's whoever, right? But, so so I've, I keep getting these emails saying that they, oh, they're such a fighter, they're a fighter, 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 fighter. I've been getting mailers lately from my assembly rep who's in a, a primary of their own about what a conservative fighter they are. Just a conservative fighter has fought for this, fought for that. Uh, here's the thing. We're all fighters in our own right. We are all fighters. I could say, I'm a fighter. I could put in my open, hey, I'm the, I'm the fighter for you. This show's about the fighters. Why don't I? Uh, we're all fighters in our own right because it doesn't mean anything after a while. I fight day in and day out, like all of you, to put food on my table for, for, for my family, and so my kids will continue to have the ability to live in the most exceptional and free nation on the planet, the most exceptional and free nation this planet's ever seen. I don't really care that you, Mr. or Miss Politician, are a fighter. It doesn't make you an exceptional candidate. I don't care. I want people who are going to actually get crap done. 
not fighters. I want people in office who are going to do the right thing, who are going to hold to the principles they espouse on the campaign trail and that the, uh, that the party espouses, and we'll get to that a little later in the show. I want people who are going to do the right thing, not people in office who will just do enough to get reelected, who will, when it comes re-election time, they're going to tell me what a fighter they've been. Oh, I fought for this. I fought for that. I don't care. It doesn't make you an exceptional candidate. You know what? Here's the thing. You know what fighters accomplish? They get beat up. That's what fighters accomplish. Yeah, you have a boxing match or a, or a UFC match. They're fighters. They're, so you have a winner and a loser, but what happens? They get beat up, right? I, that, that's about all they accomplish, getting beat up. I don't want a fighter. I want someone who's going to get the job done. Tell me what you're going to do. Tell me your plan. Lay out your plan. Show me something that you've done that gives me confidence that that behavior will continue in the future. Don't in the future. Just don't tell me you're a fighter. Everybody's a fighter. The surest way to lose my vote is to just keep pounding this over and over. Tell me what a fighter you are. I don't care. The next marketing trick that you'll see is that they'll point to past accomplishments. Now, you might say, Ryan, that's not a bad thing. We all do it when we interview for jobs. And you know what? I don't disagree with you in that respect. We do. We do because that's how we take the step up. That's how we move on in our careers. We, we point to past accomplishments. Oh, yes, I did this. I did that. It's a, it's a key indicator of how you'll operate and what you can bring, what value you bring in the future. Now, the key for me is to look how far back these accomplishments were. Now, typically when I interview for a job, I'll try to use accomplishments from within the last five years, right? You start getting outside of that. I mean, they're great, and I do. I mean, if, if there's something that's really, hey, th- this is a really was a really big thing, I'll use it if it's from outside five years ago. But generally speaking, I'm, I'm using stuff that's recent because that's the most important stuff. Use stuff that's, you're using these things, these um, uh, accomplishments from the from most recent time frame. They're more relevant. They're going to be more indicative of your future behavior than something I did 10 years ago. I honestly don't care what you did 10 years ago. I want to know what you did most recently to make my life better. And we're talking about elected officials, candidates running for office here. I don't care what you did 10 years ago. Honestly, if you're telling me something about you that you did 10 years ago, you're pointing to how long you've been in office, and it makes me think that you've been in office too long. If, if the biggest accomplishment you can point to is from 10 years ago or more, you've been in office too long. I'm not going to keep electing you on something you did 10 years ago. Now, for a case study of this, we'll go back to my assembly rep who's getting primaried. A couple of uh, pieces of literature I've received now pointed not only to how big of a fighter they are, but to how much money they had saved through the Act 10 legislation that was put through in our state over 10 years ago. Now, in a nutshell, Act 10 made our state, the great state of Wisconsin, a right, essentially a right-to-work state. I'm oversimplifying that. There's much more to that, obviously, but For the simplicity's sake in our discussion here, it in essence made our state a right-to-work state. Some unions no longer would be able to collect compulsory dues, mainly uh, focus on the uh, public sector unions, but 
you know, it trickles down to, uh, to, to the private sector unions as well. So fine, it, that's all well and good. It saved us money. It got us out of a budget crisis at the time. Great. What are you doing now? What have you done now? What are the plans to reduce my taxes in the future? What are the plans for a more efficient and limited government? The GOP in our state had the trifecta of control in this state for eight years. They had, we had both houses and the governorship, but they got spooked by the protest, dare I say, insurrection. That followed Act 10, if you think. <laughs> Go and look it up. It, it wasn't any different than what happened at the Capitol, except there wasn't the whole rioting piece. The, the the only all they show you there in the the January sixth thing is the fences getting broke down, windows getting broken. It was a big protest, which the vast majority of people stayed out. Same difference here. I it, it just the duplicity. It's I'm getting off on a tangent here, but go look it up. Look at the Act Ten protests and and everything that went with it here in the state. So I I think. Our officials got spooked by that, and they didn't do anything nearly as bold to continue to shape this into a great place to live. They could have done things like eliminated the state income tax or cut unnecessary government government bureaucracies. It's actually pretty tone a pretty tone deaf play when you have people deciding whether to buy food or buy gas to throw out an accomplishment from ten years ago a major accomplishment from 10 years ago when you've been in office for that long about how much money taxpayers have saved. I don't care. That money that is saved over that time isn't helping me today because that money that you're saving me has been inflated away. I want to know what your plans are for taking on the overreaching federal government. How are you going to put them back in their box so they're not meddling in state affairs or not inflating our money away? I want to know what you as my elected official are going to do to lessen the impact of the disastrous policies coming from the district of corruption. I don't care what you did 10 years ago and how much it's saved over time because all that savings has been just inflated away. I want to know what those recent accomplishments have been. Have they been bold? Have they been, uh, have they made my life better? Or is it just a, well, well, we did this and we, you know, to continue on with our, our budgeting and our budget. I don't care at this point. I want to know what you're doing to, to, to lessen bureaucracy, to put Washington back in its box. Saving me money doesn't do anything for me when it comes to my rights being infringed upon by the lunatics in Washington. It just doesn't. So I don't care what you did 10 years ago. It's great. Yippee, we've saved a lot of money. My taxes have... have you know, stayed relatively low compared to what they were in this state. But I want to know what your recent accomplishments have been. And especially for an entrenched politician who's been in office to point to accomplishments 10 years ago, because those most recent accomplishments are going to be more indicative of how they make decisions today and in the future than something they did 10 years ago and in all rights, probably spooked them from doing anything more boldly. If your best accomplishment is uh, that you can highlight is from 10 years ago, then you really, in my book, you really haven't done anything to note uh, of note to warrant my consideration for future employment as my rep. And I'd take the same, I'd take that same approach. And actually I have hiring people. 
I've had experienced people where they kept going back to things they did 10, 15 years ago. I don't care. What'd you do last year? What'd you do two years ago? What'd you do within the last five years of note? I'm looking for certain things here. If the biggest thing you're highlighting is from 10 years ago, and then you have a few smaller things from the last couple of years, oh, well, we continue to do this. I'm looking for bold at this point. We need bold to make sure our country stays exceptional, to make sure our state's rights continue to thrive as protected by the Constitution. That is your job as my state representative. Okay, now the last trick I'll cover here is this, just this constant reiteration of some sort of uh, personal characteristic. Now I'm going to give you what I'm calling the Ryan rule on this one. And it goes like this. If you have to repeatedly tell me that you are some sort of characteristic, that you possess some sort of characteristic, then you're trying to convince yourself as much as me that you have that quality. Actions speak louder than words. As an example, back to the aforementioned gubernatorial candidate, who, by the way, was our lieutenant governor for eight years, those eight years that uh, we had control and was part of the Act 10 deal. Now, they keep mentioning how grassroots they are and that they are the only grassroots candidate, blah, blah, blah. Okay, here's the thing. When you haven't denounced and distanced yourself from any swampy establishment ties, because that is what people are looking for here. How many how many uh, uh, Trump endorsements have won their primaries? The vast majority. Not all of them. You're never going to go 100% in that, but the vast majority. So if you're going to try and... Uh, portray yourself as a grassroots candidate, as the only grassroots candidate, and you haven't distanced yourself from swampy establishment ties, you aren't going to be viewed as grassroots, no matter how many times you print it on a piece of paper, put it on your website, or mention it in stump speeches. It just doesn't work. People see the connections. They see what you did. They've understood you. You've been in government before. No matter how much you, you, you say you have a certain characteristic, your actions speak louder than words. Now, have they done some things? Yeah, they, they've, they've done some things. I'm, I'm not going to discount that. There's been some definite kind of building of the, of the uh, uh, more of the, call it the grassroots, if you will, I guess, um, coalition here or uh, activities here, but if you're going to keep hammering that, you really need to to kind of distance yourself from from the swampy establishment ties as well. People are just aren't going to believe it. They're not going to believe you. Even if you're doing some things, if you got these other things going on, where especially if you've got, um, as an example, and this did happen here, when you've got uh, other candidates are being dis, uh, discouraged from entering the primary race by the state's perceived most powerful Republican. And you don't denounce that and say, hey, you know what? I view anybody, it's anybody's right to run. They can come into the race. Uh, we All our ideas should be heard. You're, you're not going to be viewed as a grassroots candidate. You want my, you want my vote even though I'm not from Missouri? I was, you show me. You have to show me that you possess that characteristic, not just repeatedly say you have it. And you have to do it consistently. You have to say, okay, I've done these things, but I'm also, hey, I, I'm, that, I don't agree with that, 
Anybody can run. It's their right. Continuing to repeat it without action is a sure way to have me looking to place my vote elsewhere. So given that, given those marketing tricks, what characteristics, easy for me to say, should we look for then? Well, one, big one, are they constitutionally focused? Will they pledge to uphold the Constitution even if it may, uh, may mean they do not get reelected? That could happen. The Constitution is absolute. And as much as we want to put interpretations and everything else within it to bend it to fit our point of view, and believe me, politicians, we are seeing it, politicians bend it to fit their view, to fit their narrative, to fit their ability to get reelected, that we have to have a candidate that has a backbone to stand up, be constitutionally focused, and uphold it, even if it means they might lose a re-election bid. Now, my opinion, if you're upholding the Constitution, you're not going to lose your re-election bid. Do what's right. Constitutionally focused people will get my vote. And even better, especially if it's, if it's and this is only applicable to someone seeking re-election, but even better is a demonstrated track record of defending liberty. Now, that could be whether in office or uh, some sort of um, kind of activist uh, uh, activities, uh, looking to getting involved with, I don't know, filing lawsuit is an example that comes to mind right now. Having that demonstrated track record of defending liberty, of defending the Constitution, whether it be out there protesting, whether it be out there uh, start, hey, starting some sort of um, PAC or nonprofit uh, with the sole intention of, of defending liberty, freedom, our Constitution, and our way of life and our rights, that's even better if you have something like that, not just some career politician who's sat in office and keeps telling us what you know, something they are some, and, you know, trying to convince themselves that they are that as much as they are us. Now, second, if they are candidates seeking re-election, do they have real tangible accomplishments in the near term that they are pointing to? Remember, when it comes to the political landscape, recent actions should be more heavily weighted because that is going to indicate how that person will make decisions in the future. Are they focused on keeping us a free country or their own re-election bid down the road? Like I said, the same goes for business, right? You focus in on the most recent accomplishments. Politicians, what what have you done lately? Ten years ago, that's great. It helped us out. We're still seeing benefit from it. Great. I don't. You know what? We're still seeing benefit from, uh, let's say the Apple's iPhone. And that was what I don't know, ten, twenty years ago. Now, how long ago that was? We're still seeing benefit. It's is Apple pointing back and saying, oh, well, you know, we're the ones that gave you the iPhone and started the smartphone revolution. No, they, they're saying, here's, here's the latest and greatest. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what this can do. We did this, and now it's a future indication of we're going to do that. We say we're going to do something, we're going to do it. Because we have that recency. We keep, evol- we keep uh, innovating. The same thing goes for politicians. I don't care what you did 10 years ago. Yeah, is it impacting my life today? Still sure. But what have you done to build upon that? That's the biggest thing. 
Third, what's their platform and what do they and, and what do they have in terms of an executable plan to get it accomplished? That that's the big thing, right? Because we see so many, well, oh, I can't get this done because they're I you know, we have to take all the branches and blah, 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 and Democrats are blocking me or Republicans are blocking me, or people within my own party are blocking me. So what what plan do you have to get it done uh, accomplished? Do you have tangible uh, actions that you're going to take to get your voice heard, to get your plan, and by extension, my plan, what I'd like to see, because I'm electing you as my representative, accomplished? Is there a plan in place for execution that is contingent on their party sweeping the election? Or do they have actually a plan B they can point to? So do they have a, uh, is their plan, is what they're laying out, is that actually 100% contingent on, I don't care, Republican or Democrat sweeping the election and controlling all branches of government? Or is there a plan B? Is there something that said, well, okay, actually, you know, if if we don't sweep it, here's what we're going to accomplish. Here's other things we think we can get accomplished. Uh, you know, I realize I'm oversimplifying this here. It doesn't work that way, especially today's zero-sum politics game. Um, but is there a plan B? Or are they just going to sit in there for two, four, six years, whatever it is, kind of bumping along, well, I did this, I did this, I, whatever, I introduced it and never made the floor, whatever. Or are they going to say, okay, here's my plan B. We keep every day uh, pushing forward on this. If if I can't get it through, I'm just going to keep trying uh, to talk to people to get it through, to get my bill heard, to get a vote on it at least. If we get a vote on it, it gets shot down, fine. At least you did your job and got a vote on something that, you know, we put you in office for. I'm not going to fault you for that. At least you tried. But if you just say, well, I can't do anything because, you know, the Democrats control it right now. Well, okay, you're, you're, you're essentially useless at that point. Go try that in, a, in the corporate world. Well, I couldn't get this done because sales didn't want to do it. Well, okay, what else did you try, right? I mean, so anyway. Do they have an, a plan B if if a plan A of, you know, one party controlling all branches falls through? It's important we do our homework on these candidates. We're, we're all living the effects right now of making choices based on name recognition and marketing gimmicks. We keep reelecting people because, oh, well, they, uh, they've been in office. I know the name. I'll fill in the bubble for them. We need to treat this as if it's our business being run, and we are hiring people to run our business. We need to vet these candidates as closely as we do someone we would hire to work for us in in our own personal company, because that's essentially what they're running. They're running our company for us. If you're listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star review. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening on the audio version or Uh, viewing on Rumble or YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. The more subscriptions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations made by the algorithms, and the more we are able to spread the truth. Okay, moving on. One thing I don't want to hear from another Republican Party representative, and you know what, I'm going to say this at the national level. Um, 
state by state, it's a little different. I know just this will be a generality, but you know what I don't want to hear from them anymore is how they are the poverty of upholding the Constitution and preserving freedom. I especially don't want to see that from uh, the the RNC, the National Committee anymore. And if, if state parties aren't going to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, this goes against the Constitution, I don't want to hear from them either. I don't want to hear how they're the party of principle and ideas because they don't stand on them. If you're going to allow this to slide through, you don't stand on them. I don't want to hear it from any of them anymore about how we're the, you know, we're the principled and idea party. Now, don't get me wrong. There are a lot of very good individual members of the party. A, a lot of good elected representatives who are standing up to this. And I understand we've got to cycle out the ones that are doing uh, that that are that are subverting the Constitution, that are are subverting our rights because they see it as the politically expedient thing to do for them to get reelected and get into office. We got to replace them. I get it, but I don't want to hear from the party if they're if if they're not going to say, well, you know, as a party, we're we stand up for the Constitution and we stand up for the rights. I don't want to hear it anymore when you're going about and and, and signing on to bills that that and negotiating bills that subvert the constitution that subvert constitutional rights i don't want to hear it you don't have that claim to it anymore i said as i said there's many many good individual members of the party many good uh, uh individuals who have been elected recently that share that view that hold the uphold the constitution and we have many of them speak out against this this atrocious gun safety bill, whatever they're calling it, that that Mitch the Turtle McConnell sent his lackeys in to negotiate with Democrats on to, sub, to, to subvert constitutional rights. I don't want to hear anything about they're the, the party of principles and, and rights preservation and we're for the rights, not until they start standing by them principles, not until they stand by the principles, even in the potential of them losing their cushy government gig that we elect them into. I don't want to hear it anymore. Once again, when push comes to shove, a chance arises for the GOP to stand on principle, for GOP members to stand on principle, to stand on those things the party says it's for, to stand and protect the constitutionally guaranteed rights of Americans. And we have some Republicans join in on a hasty, emotionally driven Democrat agenda item to further erode the Second Amendment. You know, we can't get anything passed that will benefit society as a whole in any sort of reasonable time frame, but when it comes to sending billions of dollars, billions of your and my money, to the politicians' laundromats around the world or to erode the rights of the people, these a-holes are all over it, lickety-split. We can't get anything, we can't get tax cuts passed in the amount of time, in this short of amount of time that it took them to jam this gun thing through. Now let's be real. Let's be real for a second because nobody thought about this. A decision was made based on uh, emotions and tragic events. But let's be real. This recently signed gun control bill, I'll call it a gun grab bill, and you'll understand why in a minute would not have prevented either Buffalo 
or Uvalde or any number and, dare I say, the majority of the past tragedies we've seen, as the article I will link in the description box states. And it will not prevent future tragedies. I've said it before. These are issues of the heart and of mental well-being, not access to guns. The bill itself is a dog and pony show. Now, did Mitch the Turtle McConnell and the rest of the Senate Rhino Brigade who voted for this thing, who voted to push this through in the House, in the House too, there were, uh, I believe, 14 or so in the House, House Republicans that voted for it. Now, did they uh, see some poll somewhere that said they could snag a few displeased Democrat-leaning independent voters by signing on to some bipartisan gun control bill, and so they just acted on it. They pounced. Oh, we can give votes. I understand there's an emotional piece here. I understand that there's probably some where this hit home hard, too, and they wanted to do something. But doing something for the sake of doing something isn't the right reason. Did they actually think about the ramifications of a potentially larger swath of voters than just saying the hell with it and staying home come election time? When given the choice between getting a few more votes or handing over our rights, why is it these politicians sell out our rights? Now, nobody is going to argue that we need to think about the violence problem. We need to think about it and address it. And I'm certainly not against violent felons having their right to bear arms stripped. After all, there are consequences to actions. But to sign on to this type of bill, and then the legal ramifications of it not even being thought about, and the the legal ramifications that this bill brings is mind-blowing, especially when we hear again how often the Republican Party says they are here to stand for the Constitution and our rights. Now, let's take a look at a couple of things from this bill. And this is, this is from a uh, Reason.com piece by Jacob Sullum that I will, again, post in the description box. Now, here's the first thing that uh, Sullum writes. It says this, The bill requires that background checks for 18 to 20-year-olds who buy guns from federally licensed dealers include juvenile criminal and psychiatric records. If the National Instant Criminal Background check system notifies a dealer within three business days that the cause exists to further investigate a possibly disqualifying juvenile record, the dealer is required to delay the sale up to 10 business days after the initial query. At that point, the sale can be completed unless a disqualifying record has been identified. So here, what's the point of this? The point of this and what they're trying to get at, honestly, it's... I. I understand. You can understand, right? I, I, you want to do something. Let's do something to help these people, not squash everybody else's rights. So what's the point of this? What, what, what they're trying to get at here is they want to prevent angry, mentally ill teens and young people, young 20s. They, they want to prevent them from getting guns to commit mass murder. Here's the thing. As mentioned before, it wouldn't have stopped the Buffalo shooter. It wouldn't have stopped the Uvalde shooter because neither had a criminal record and neither had a psychiatric evaluation that flagged them as needing to be involuntary, uh, involuntarily committed. So there would have been no flags to say that these individuals should not have been sold weapons. 
Now, because of this, because of this law and the way it's worded now, you have to ask the question, will we start to see psych wards filling up with teens now because doctors will swing towards a position of extreme caution? Oh, they, uh, that's very questionable. Uh, let's commit him. Are we going to start to see that now because of this, uh, of this law? Uh, where will it stop? No, it, it was, it, it's, uh, to be fair, it's been noted that the, both the Buffalo and Uvalde shooters exhibited questionable uh, behavior, questionable remarks online that should have been, uh, that someone should have come alongside them and asked them what's going on. The fact is, they also were, uh, at least the Buffalo shooter, was psychiatrically evaluated, and it was determined that he was fine. So what does that say? Now, this, to me, just says, well, now we're going to see the pendulum swing to a position of extreme caution when we have these things, and people are going to start getting committed. And then where does it stop? Where does this stop? So now it's 18 to 20-year-olds that we're going back to the juvie records. Now, what if the next shooter is like 25? Will they go back then? Will the politicians go back in and start increasing the age limit on this bill? Well, we had a 25-year-old do it. Well, now we're going to say anybody up to 25, we're going to go back through your early 20s and teens and see what you did. Were you in jail? Were you thrown in jail? Did you have a psych uh, evaluation done? Were you committed? So, So where does it stop then? It leaves it open, in my opinion, and you know this is where it's going. Are they just going to keep doing that then until everyone falls into the category where you can't get a gun anymore? Now, and before the hardcore ride-or-die Republicans out there tell me I'm wrong and that that could never happen, I'd ask you to remove your Republican current thing chip for a second and think about how we got to this place we are now at with men competing in women's sports, children placing dollars in the underwear of drag queens at drag queen shows, and how our schools are now indoctrination facilities with porn available in the libraries. How did we get to that point? Because we said, oh, that could never happen, and let it go, and let it go. It was this exact slow creep on the laws, on our culture, that enabled this. It was this exact constant uh, attitude of, oh, that will never happen, that got us to this point where God should be telling all the lots out there to grab the family and get out of Dodge because he's about to nuke the place. That's how we got here. Is that mindset of, oh, that'll never happen? It will. I just gave you like three things, pointed to three things, that we had this attitude on saying, oh, well, that'll never happen. Let's allow that. Oh, that'll never happen. And now we got people dancing naked in the streets in pride parades in front of children. Oh, that'll never happen. Well, it's here. And you know what? You know damn good and well that push comes to shove. The next shooter's 25. The next one's 30. They're going to go back, revisit this bill. What do we need to do to prevent this? Oh, let's up the age to 30. You know it's going to happen. Take the current thing chip out and think for yourself for a second. I mean, I haven't even, this discussion, we haven't even gotten to the part yet. This, this is just the first part. We haven't even gotten to the part yet about how this law permanently strips those juveniles of their Second Amendment rights as adults. Oh, yes. Yes, it does. Back to the piece. This bill. This bill makes it so that a teenager who is convicted of a crime punishable by more than a year of incarceration would not be able 
uh, to buy firearms as an adult. Likewise, for a teenager, uh, teenager who is subjected to involuntary psychiatric treatment, provided that it happened at 16 years of age or older. So this bill, you as a teenager have a little run-in with the law. You end up in juvie. You have, you know, it's tough being a teenager these days. You end up involuntarily committed. You can have your Second Amendment rights stripped away as a teenager. And then your SOL when it comes to adulthood. You may have recovered. You may have, uh, uh, it was, may have been a nonviolent crime. You may have been thrown in juvie because you, you know, were uh, dealing weed. I don't know. But you have, you'll have, you, this law has in it that you will be stripped of your Second Amendment rights as an adult if you are in juvie for more than a year or you have uh, been committed involuntarily for psychiatric treatment. Solemn notes how this looks quite dubious when it's compared to the treatment of the so-called boyfriend loophole, and he writes this about it. That policy looks even more questionable when you compare it to the bill's treatment of the boyfriend loophole. Under the current law, people are prohibited from owning guns if they have been convicted of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence against an intimate partner. Very, uh, very wide open. Now, the latter phrase, uh, some continues to write, is defined to include a current or former spouse, a current or former cohabitant, and a parent of the misdemeanant's child. Now, the Bipartisan uh, Safer Communities Act expands that definition to include participants in a current or recent former dating relationship. The new language, Solemn continues on, requires a continuing serious relationship of romantic or intimate nature as evidenced by the length of the relationship, the nature of the relationship, and the frequency and type of interaction between the individuals involved in the relationship. This expansion includes two notable qualifications. It does not apply to domestic violence misdemeanors committed before the law takes effect, and the gun possession ban lasts just five years. Now, it really starts to look like a slow a methodical gun grab when you put it up against the boyfriend loophole. Now, doesn't it? So you have here uh, frequency and, and um, or uh, not, not frequency, but the, the law doesn't apply to uh, domestic violence misdemeanors committed before the law takes effect. So before the bi- bipartisan, you notice how they did that with the language, the bipartisan uh just again, another reason why the public Republicans are not the, geez, just not the brightest bulbs in the box. Sometimes, the you, let me go back to this for a second. The bipartisan Safer Communities Act. Do you know? See how they named that? Do you see how they named that? So now the Democrats can go back and say, oh yeah, the Republicans signed on to that too. Look at the name of this thing. It was the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act. They were for gun control too. Jeez. Someone wake up in the Republican Party. My gosh. Anyway, so this law doesn't apply if you committed as an adult domestic violence, a domestic violence misdemeanor before the law takes effect. And the ban just lasts five years. So now this 
uh, for adults, for adults that are, are um, that would fall into this um, uh, under the, uh, the this new law. So, like I said, this this starts to look like a real slow, methodical gun grab. Now, if a man could be a woman, I mean, just as an example, if a man assaults his domestic partner. He could get his gun back in five years. But an individual who had some run-ins with the police as a teen, had a rough teen, uh, rough teen years, they ended up in juvenile detention for a year or more, but they turned their life around. By the time they became an adult, can't uh, regain or can't even buy a, a, a firearm under the bill, the way this bill is worded. They are, you get in trouble as a teen, you are now... Uh, precluded from buying a firearm. But yet, if you're, you, you know, the boyfriend loophole here says, if you assault your domestic partner, yeah, you can get your gun back in five years. See this, what this is? It's the start of the disarming of the population. They are starting at a point here where they can attempt to easily justify their actions in doing so. They're, they're grabbing on the emotion of these recent tragedies again and, 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 using that to justify the, uh, their actions and saying, well, if any of these teens are, are in juvie for a, a year and blah, and, 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 uh, have sight tre- uh, involuntarily committed psychiatrically, they can't buy a gun anymore. This is the slow creep at the gun grab. How many teenagers do we see turn their life around and after they get out of their teen years, they mature, they wake up and say, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't such a great teenager. And they're perfectly well-adjusted, fully functioning, responsible adults. But because they made some mistakes when they're young, this bill says you can't have your guns. Even when you become an adult, no matter how much you follow the law as an adult, you'll never get a gun. So a juvenile that is committed to a psychiatric treatment or has incarceration lasting more than a year, whether a violent act or not, doesn't matter, is now banned from ever owning a firearm. And in order to get states to go along, of course, you have to get the states to go along with this. There's the obligatory dangling of federal dollars for grant programs. So we'll go back to Selim's piece for this. The Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, which approves federal grants to states with extreme risk protection order programs, say eligible programs must respect the Bill of Rights, including the substantive or procedural due process rights guaranteed under the 5th and 14th Amendments. But the bill's specific requirements fall for far, far short of that aspiration. Now, what are they talking about here? This is your red flag laws. So this is the red flag laws that... The Supreme Court already has said they're not legal. They're not constitutional. But the federal government says, here, you have a red flag law. Here's some grant money, but you have to apply it in, uh, you know, this, uh, this manner. Uh, you know, eh, keep, keep the Fifth and the Fourteenth uh, Amendment rights guarantee um, that are guaranteed there in mind, but, you know, have at it. They don't outline what it is, they, they, the, the very specific steps that need to be followed. They leave it open and just say, hey, follow this. Don't, they're just basically saying, that don't infringe upon the Constitution, which, you know, states are going to anyway. The federal government does, your states does. It doesn't matter. They're going to anyway. 
So these clowns that wrote this bill didn't even spell out for the states exactly what this means. They left it open-ended. I think that's by design. Because they know they can rely on the corruptocracies of California, New York, and Illinois to be heavy-handed in their enforcement. Those states' enforcement models then become the basis for when the Democrats want to come around and revise this bill to further constrain Second Amendment rights. The language here in the bill is only in here, the way it's written, this uh, pointing to make sure you don't infringe upon the, the due process rights of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendment. That that language is only here so that the Republicans can point to it and say, "See, we protected your rights in this bill. We, this right, this bill, you know, both protects you, uh, protects community safety, and it protects your community uh, constitutional rights." So, so go ahead, keep thinking that that'll never happen. Keep thinking that we won't see this bill revisited after the next tragedy. Like I said, I didn't. I'll be, I'm willing to bet you didn't think you'd see a day where parents were taking their children to drag queen strip clubs either and having their kids walk up to them and throw a dollar in their underwear loop. All right, so let's end this crap sandwich with a quote by Turtle McConnell. And he said this, and this is in regards to the Bipartisan Safe, Safer Communities Act or whatever crap they're calling it. So this is what he said. Turtle said had this to say. A common-sense package of popular steps that will help make these horrifying incidents less likely while fully upholding the Second Amendment rights of law-abiding citizens. This, again, finishing up. This package is neither common sense, they didn't think about the ramifications, nor does it uphold the rights of law-abiding citizens. It will not prevent the next tragedy. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world where people are going to people. If they are hell-bent on causing destruction, wreaking havoc, murdering others, they're going to do it. It doesn't matter what you put in place. Like we said, this this bill right now wouldn't have prevented the, the two tragedies that we have, saw, have seen most recently. It wouldn't have prevented Columbine. It wouldn't have prevented any of the others because... Even if those people were, uh, they won, they weren't flagged. They wouldn't have been flagged under this law because they, they had clean records. Two, how is it going to prevent somebody from uh, going into, like, their parents' gun safe and grabbing a gun and going to, to, to commit a horrifying act? It, it's not going to prevent that. What it is, it's, it, it's, like I said, this is the early stages of a gun grab. It's the slow creep towards a total gun grab. This doesn't uphold the rights of law-abiding citizens. You can't make the claim. You can't make that claim. When you are stripping the rights of someone before they even reach adulthood based on what happened to them as a juvenile. A kid that turns their life around by the time they are 18 and lives a life as a law-abiding citizen, as a law-abiding adult, is SOL under this debacle of a bill. Now here's the thing as I see it. This now lies, this whole thing, this whole debate about this lies at the the feet of the GOP at the state level. Those state-level GOP uh, folks have an opportunity to stand up and show that the GOP indeed will stand up for our constitutional rights. And if they do it at the state level, great. If they start doing this stuff at the state level, maybe... You know, they'll see their donations increase because people will be more motivated to maybe take the step up from donating to candidate to actually donating to the party. 
because the party actually is showing that they have people's rights and, and uh, concerns in mind by doing this. So the, the GOP at the state level, even at the community level, uh, now, um, have an opportunity here to stand up and show that they are going to stand for our rights. They are not going to say and accept that, well, okay, someone went to juvie and stripped their rights for their, their entire life. So how can they do this? They can do it by not taking the federal grant money for, for red flag laws, for one. Now, I, what I think a lot of states do is they see this federal money coming in to plug budget holes in the state budget, which is a whole other topic, but... <laughs> They can do it by saying, no, we're, we're, just, we're not going to have red flag laws. We're not going to take the federal grant money. We're not going to be beholden to doing what the feds want us to do. The state GOP folks can do this. Your representatives, the party itself, can do this by telling the, fed, the feds to go pound sand on this one. Just like the states do with their sanctuary laws and their legalized marijuana laws. Last I checked, uh, it was still illegal to immigrate here without going through the process, but yet we have sanctuary states, we have sanctuary cities, that those laws are ignored by the feds, turn a blind eye, and that's under Republican and Democrat. It's not just, it's not just one party. Both parties have ignored those. We've had both parties in control of our government, and they've ignored it, just like the legalized marijuana laws. Last I checked, illicit drugs were we're still illegal in this country. That includes marijuana. Say what you want about it. The law is the law. You want it, get it changed at the federal level. But yet, states are just ignoring those. They're nullifying federal law. So I don't want to hear about, well, we can't nullify federal law. They're saying we have to do this. No, they tell them to go pound sand on it. This is a constitutional issue. And like I said, the feds are ignoring state laws as it is already anyway. Another thing they can do. They can file suit on the grounds of this bill violating the Constitution. They can do this either through the state's attorney general office, if it's a Republican uh, attorney general, obviously. A Democrat's going to tell them to go pound Sam. But, you know, if you work together, if, if you're lucky enough to have a state with a Republican attorney, attorney general, you can work through that office, or there's plenty of other legal means available. You can backdoor it through maybe a, a nonprofit uh, you can encourage people to to get a nonprofit uh, legal team involved here. There's plenty of those out there. There is a path to redemption here for the GOP on this one. They and it starts at the state level. I, you know what? Like I said, until they start doing these things, I don't want to hear about how they're protecting rights. They, uh, some members, thought it a good idea to strip people's rights before they even hit adulthood. Until that's rectified, I don't want to hear, or, or, or not even rectified, until I start seeing them stand up, I don't want to hear about how they're out there protecting our rights. Start showing me something. There's a path to redemption for the GOP, one that can show that the GOP is, in fact, what they claim to be, the party that will stand up on principle and protect our constitutional rights, that will uphold the Constitution no matter how unpopular it is. The question is, will they do it? Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living with Liberty Outfitters. 
and be sure to visit it on July 4th. We are running a one-day special there, 22% off of your purchases. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.